Okay, I'm recording. Are you recording, Esther? Okay, great. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons. I'm the senior producer on the podcast, and our guest producer on the show today is Esther. No Sazeoge. Esther, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. I am a biologist. I do research in Nigeria. I study birds. Um, I'm also a science writer. That's what I do. That's cool. So, you know, we were trying to schedule our meeting today, and it's about 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for me while we're talking, and it's about 4 in the afternoon in Nigeria for you. So I, I just think that's it's, it's kind of cool to... Um, just show how far our you know our reach is getting with the podcast you know Esther's in Nigeria I'm in California and we're able to bring you you know a cool episode like this how's it going over there in Nigeria with the the kind of work that you're doing on birds like what specifically are you working on over there these days I'm working on water birds Um, last year I completed a project on the birds that use the Lagos Lagoon Um, so this year I'm looking to look at birds that use urban wetlands Mm -hmm. so abundance distribution just basic stuff because we don't know a lot about the birds in this particular environment so yeah that's awesome I'm hoping maybe we'll get a, a podcast episode about this soon too <laughs> Hopefully, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you know about the Amazon River dolphins before producing this episode? Anything? Okay, before my having to look into it because I was going to produce a podcast, nothing, actually. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of them before. That was really something new for me. Very interesting. Well, let's get into this episode. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear it. It's, you know, recovering um, this particular endangered species in this really incredibly impacted environment and you know learning about Suzanne and the research that she's doing and um, I think it's going to be an awesome episode for our listeners so I hope you all enjoy it. So how did you get involved with this Amazon River dolphins? So I have been working uh, with predominantly marine mammals um, mostly mostly dolphins for the past 35 years. And I went to Brazil for the first time um, over 20 years ago. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And um, I made two trips pretty quickly back to back. And then it was a really long time before I went down there again. And I went down about six years ago and absolutely fell in love all over again and saw these Amazon River dolphins again, and I just had to know more. So I was I was going to different areas where the river dolphins are found and asking a lot of questions um, of the local of the local residents, and not a lot of people could answer questions about them. Just where do they go? What do they eat? Do they all hang out together? Just just some general questions that no one could answer for me. So I thought, um, I thought we should find out more about these, about these animals. They're really, they're just such amazing creatures. And about two years ago, they were deemed uh, endangered. So the more questions we can ask and get answered, uh, certainly the better off for the Amazon River dolphins. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. So I have not stopped going back now for, for five years. 
I'd like you to tell me what does your typical work day look like? Well, when when I am in Brazil on the Amazon, we typically get up around six o'clock in the morning and we load up our equipment into the canoe and we head out in search of dolphins. We are typically um, doing population surveys when we are out there so that we can start to get an idea of how many river dolphins are in a particular area. So we go out um, into these little nooks and crannies of the river, um, these little small waterways to try to find the river dolphins and then we can count them. Um, and while we are doing our counts, we are also taking a lot of photographs because we have a photo ID catalog and we typically do that until the afternoon and we may take a short break and then we head back out and we go until the sun goes down. So we're basically looking for and counting dolphins and photographing them all day long. Wow, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. So what fascinates you about the Amazon River dolphins? Well, so many things. They are definitely, I think they are the coolest species of dolphin on the entire planet. Um, they, there are a lot of really fun facts about Amazon River dolphins. A lot of people don't even know that they exist, um, and they do, and there's a lot of really cool things. So, um, they are, they're also called pink river dolphins, um, but one thing that people don't know is that when they are born, they are completely gray. And as they get older, and there are a lot of theories why, um, but they turn pink and they have different, um, they have different shades. Um, they can be really dark gray and get lighter gray. And they can be, I've seen them where they are just a very light pink, um, or a really bright, bright pink. Um, so that is very cool about them. They are also um, the only dolphin that has two different types of teeth. So you have um, dolphins um, that we're most familiar with, which are the bottlenose dolphins. They have cone-shaped teeth. They have the, Their whole mouth is completely filled with cone-shaped teeth. And then if you think of some of the smaller porpoises, they have spade-shaped teeth. Well, the Amazon River dolphin has both. They have the cone-shaped teeth in the front, and they have the spade-shaped teeth in the back. And the reason for that is because of their very wide varieties of food that they eat. So they do eat a lot of fish, but down in the Amazon, they have really big armored catfish, um, really hard on the outside. And river dolphins are also known to eat turtles from time to time. So they need those flat teeth so that they can crunch the armor of the catfish or the shells of the turtle. That snout in the front of their face is called the rostrum. And on the Amazon River Dolphin, it is extremely long. Um, they also have very large pectoral fins, which are the fins on either side of their body. Um, and they're just enormous. They are enormous. So there's a lot of really, really cool things about the Amazon River Dolphin. So it's been really neat to learn more about them. So I'm just curious because apart from working in science communication, I am a researcher also, and I work with a marine research institute. I'm quite new, so I'm just two years in. 
and I have never seen a dolphin, but I have read about them, you know, the ones that live in the marine environment. So what's, what's the difference? How are they different from the marine um, dolphins? They are really different. Like, so some of the things that I just mentioned, um, like the pectoral fins and the coloring and the teeth, um, those are definitely some very big noticeable differences. Um, the marine species, which everybody's most familiar with the terciops, which is the, which is the bottlenose dolphin. Um, they are gray, um, and they stay gray their whole life. Um, even though you can tell them apart, uh, it can be, it can be a little bit difficult. Um, they are certainly a gregarious species. Um, and the Amazon River dolphin can be too. So, um, they are very different in appearance for sure. I would say that is there. That is the biggest, that is the biggest difference between the two of them. You said these dolphins are endangered, right? What would you say are the stakes if, you know, we don't work to understand them and protect them and, you know, so what do you think? Yeah. So by knowing the health and the status of the Amazon River dolphin can really give us a lot of insight and information into the Amazon rainforest as a whole. And no matter where you are on this planet, we all need rainforests. Um, without them, this, this earth is definitely going to collapse. And with the Amazon River dolphin, there are a number of factors that are stacked against them. So for instance, there is a lot of pollution. There's a lot of plastic in the water. There's a lot of boat traffic. Um, there is habitat destruction and habitat degradation because of um, illegal mining and damming that is going on uh, down in South America, around Brazil and some other countries. Um, so there's all these things that are stacked against the Amazon River Dolphin right from the get-go. But another thing that the Amazon River Dolphin faces is illegal hunting. So there is a fish, there's a species of catfish called the Pirikachinga. And they use the Amazon River Dolphin as bait to catch this fish. So they will kill Amazon River Dolphins with machetes or with harpoons and they will stuff them inside of a wooden bait box so that they can catch this catfish and they will ship the catfish off to neighboring countries um, for food. And they estimate close to 2,000 river dolphins being killed annually in just one very small area. And once we start to kill those river dolphins, that's going to affect the fish population, that is going to affect the forest as a whole. So we really need to we really need to do our best because we are losing this species, this particular species, at an alarming rate. On your website, there was something about how that you work with local people and you try to use their their beliefs, their wisdom. Can you give a kind of example as to how you try to make that? Yeah, work? absolutely. So um one of the things that we do is we go into these riverside communities and we help we help them by um, bringing in school supplies and things like that. So we believe that conservation education is very important. So the way that it works in this relationship is that, so the Amazon River 
is enormous. It is so huge, it's gigantic. So one of the things that we can use is just their knowledge of the Amazon rainforest and how to navigate it and where we might be able to find river dolphins that we might not be able to find so easily because it is such a vast area. And there are all these little tiny waterways in ways that you can go through the rainforest. It sounds, it sounds really funny, but yes, we, we take a canoe into the, into the rainforest and we can find, um, we can find dolphins in the forest, especially during the flood times of the year. And we rely on the locals for that information. Um, and they are always willing to help out, but we also, explain to them, we like to teach them about why the river dolphins are so important and how it links not only to the other species, to the other wildlife inside of the Amazon rainforest, but also how it loops back to them too. So by creating this relationship um, between our researchers and the Riverside communities, we've been able to develop this really neat relationship um, and it has really been is really been wonderful because we want to be able to to save the all of the wildlife in the rainforest, and we do that through education with with the riverside communities. That's interesting. So, would you say that there has been changes in the behaviors of the local people since you started working? I believe so. I think um, I think everything is. It's a little bit of a slow process, but that's okay because we want to make sure that that they trust us, right? And we trust them. We're building relationships not only with the with the wildlife, but with the but with the residents as well. And without that trust and without that relationship, we're not going to get very far. Um, so I think it has been slow, but I think that they understand why we are there. I think they understand that we are doing good, not only for the wildlife, but for them as well. And we are trying to come up with other solutions. So for example, we don't, we don't ever go into an area and tell them that they are doing something wrong or they are doing something bad and that they need to stop. Um, part of the whole thing is that we need to provide solutions. Um, and I think that they realize and understand that we are just there to help and not only help the river dolphins, but to help them as well. So I think those relationships have definitely gotten a lot stronger over the years um, and they understand more about just, you know, reusing items and not using plastics and things like that and just being more cautious with the wildlife um, and so when we go down there now they are always very excited to tell us stories about where they have seen river dolphins and how many they've seen or if they've seen babies um, and things like that so it's definitely a slow process but that's okay as long as we are moving forward and making progress which we are that's great Definitely. Working in conservation, you need to be patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pa patience, patience is key. Yeah. So you said something earlier about how that you always take photographs because you're trying to make a catalog. Yes. So they vary. All individuals are different. And whether you are talking about small porpoises or if you are talking about large whales, 
they can all be identified by their fluke, by their flukes, um, which is the tail um, at the back. So every single one is like their own fingerprint. No two dolphins have the exact same tail. So that is one way. Another way that you can tell um, different dolphins apart is from their dorsal fin. But where that becomes a challenge with the Amazon River dolphin is they don't really have the traditional dorsal fin that you might see like on the marine species. It's more of a ridge. So that makes identifying them um, using a dorsal fin uh, a little more challenging because it's not quite there. And we can definitely use the flukes, but they don't necessarily always bring their flukes up. When they do, we do our best to photograph that as quickly as possible because we can definitely identify them using that method. But they also vary in their color patterns. Like I was saying, so they start gray, but then they get pink as they get older, but they also become very splotchy and there's different patchwork of that coloration. So we take photographs um, of both sides. Um, we, take, we take as many photographs as we can because that is the best way um, to identify the, the individuals. So then we compile all of these photographs, thousands and thousands of photographs, and we will match them up and we know exactly which one. So we have, um, we have about 30 specific individuals that we can identify and the residents can identify them as well. And that's usually through the color patterns. Um, so it will be really neat. So for example, we have, um, there's one dolphin um, whose name is Mateco. Um, and the folks from the Riverside communities they know, they've started to know these individuals um, and they will be able to tell us, oh, we saw Mateco over here. So if we're trying to find a particular individual, um, they have become, the residents have become pretty invested in it. So it's really neat for them to be a part of it. That's definitely interesting <laughs> to be able to call one dolphin by Yeah, name. it's yeah. really neat. Many of them have names. Some of them have a few names. Um, so they can have, they might have different names from one community to the next. Um, and that's another reason why this photo ID catalog is, uh, can be important because we now know through these photo ID catalogs that the same dolphin might have two different names. So I might hear a story about dolphin A in this community and I might hear a story about dolphin B from a different community only to find out that it's the exact same dolphin. So that's been really, that's been very interesting to find out over the years. So that means this work, there are several communities involved. Like how many communities are we talking about? We cover an area that is about 45 kilometers. So there are several communities that we, um, that we interact with in, in, in our time down there and when we are out in the field doing our research. So we make sure to visit all of the different communities um, and they've all been wonderful. So you said you have like thousands of photos to analyze. That sounds like a whole lot of work. It's a lot of work for me, for sure. Um, but we also have two university interns um, that that do a lot of that that do a lot of that work for us. We also collect audio samples. 
So we have hydrophones that we put into the water and we record the sounds of the river dolphins. And we have an entire department <laughs> at, um, at a university, it's Eckerd College in Florida. And the students in the animal behavior lab there um, are going through all of those audio recordings and separating it all out and putting it in. Um, they have very distinct software that they use that is specifically for dolphin calls. As much work as I have, I could, I could not do it by myself. So it's very nice that we have, um, we have not only our board members, but we have um, board advisors and then we have our interns. And then, as I mentioned, we have a, we have a whole department at a college that is, uh, that works on different aspects of our project as well. And we certainly, we certainly could not do it alone. How has it been for you having to stay in the Amazon for a while, you know, considering that these rural communities are probably not quite what you are used to? No, it is, it is very different. So at home, I live in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is a very big city, um, with, you know, when we are not in the pandemic, there's always music festivals and thousands of restaurants with really good food. Um, in that, the Amazon is very different. It is, it is very quiet. It is not, it is not populated the way that it is here. Um, but I absolutely love it. We, in the, in our canoe, we pack a hammock. <laughs> We pack a hammock and a cooler uh, for some food with some food, um, but we do a lot of fishing out on the river as well. Um, but it's just it's just so peaceful and it's so beautiful uh, that I absolutely love it. Uh, I I I sleep very well there, <laughs> but I miss I miss being in the jungle. It's just I absolutely love it. So what's the conservation efforts like for the larger ecosystem, the larger Amazon forest? That's a, that's a great question, Esther. And um, so there are definitely some challenges down in Brazil. There are a lot of great universities. There are a lot of great research centers, but funding is very difficult down there. Um, so we work very closely with some of the researchers down in Brazil and down and down around the Amazon, which is very nice. And we try to support them as, as much as we can. But one of the things that's very difficult in terms of laws, environmental laws, there are a lot of laws in place um, to protect the Amazon but those aren't always followed. So for example, I did mention um, the killing of Amazon river dolphins. I mentioned illegal mining. So even though a lot of these things are illegal, it does happen, right? There are always illegal activities that are happening, but one of the problems down there is that there just isn't the enforcement. So there are not a lot of agents out on the river to be able to find these activities and stop the activities. So there are just not, there are just, you know, the Amazon is so huge and there just are not enough enforcement agents to, to help protect it. They, the agents that are there, um, some of them work very hard and work tirelessly to protect it. 
um, but there just aren't enough of them. That sounds very familiar, that situation. It's like what we have here in Nigeria. I bet. Yeah, there are the laws, but the law enforcement is another story. And that's why it's so important to work with the local communities. Um, because once they can become stewards for their environment, that will help, uh, they can help save the Amazon right there by by protecting it and using it properly. Um, and also by helping them come up with solutions on on ways to to possibly fish better. For example, the Pira Kachinga, if we can help them find ways to um, to use aquaculture, then that would certainly help save the Amazon River dolphin in some cases. Um, so that's why it's so important when the when the law enforcement is not there for for whatever the reason may be. Um, that's why it's really important for the for the local communities to to be the protectors of of their own ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, that that's so important because apart from the law enforcement, another issue is poverty. People are just trying mm -hmm. to make ends meet, so they're trying to provide for their families. That's another situation that you have to take care of and think about. Absolutely. It would be, it would be very easy. Like I said before, you know, we can't go in and we never do. We never go in and we tell people that they are doing the wrong thing or what they are doing is bad and tell them to stop. Um, because if they're trying to feed their family and if they have several children and there are a number of families in one community, there has to be a solution right? We can't just tell them to not do it because it's wrong. We have to, we have to explain um, why there might be a better way to do it in order to protect all of the wildlife and all the flora and fauna, but also give them another, another, another option, another alternative to what they are doing. We can't just tell them to stop because they still have people to feed and people need to live. So, um, but by providing different solutions for them, that's that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's important for um, the locals to be part of the solution. That's when it works. Absolutely. Yeah, because if they don't, if I always say, if the local communities don't believe in this project, then there's really no sense. I can't, I can't just go down and count dolphins and and tell people that the numbers are dwindling. If um, if the people don't don't believe in it and don't want to help protect the Amazon rainforest, we're going to lose it all. But it starts it starts right there. It starts with them. And if we can help provide alternatives um, while helping save all the different species and you know our, the beloved Amazon river dolphin, then then that's what we will do. It takes it takes a team. When you first went there and started working, had the local people ever had any experience with, or had they ever had any knowledge with the need to conserve these dolphins, or you were the first? What was their reaction to this initially? So there are a number of areas on the Amazon where some of the local communities interact with the dolphins, and they get into the water and they swim with them, there is actually a legend that they believe that the river dolphins are shapeshifters and at night they will come out of the water as a handsome man and he will wear a hat 
and they say that he's wearing a white hat to cover his blowhole. Um, and they say that he charms and he seduces the women and then the next morning he is gone and he has and he has gone off into his enchanted underwater world and i have found elders in communities that really truly believe in the legend um i love the legend i think it's really neat uh, and i i hope one day to meet <laughs> to meet one of these handsome photos that comes out of the water <laughs> uh, and maybe he will take me away <laughs> to his enchanted world. Um, that would be wonderful. But until then, there are these stories and they do interact with them. And I have met people. Um, a couple of years ago, I had always heard different stories. Um, they love, they know that I'm there. They call me the dolphin girl. They, they know that I'm there, um, for the river dolphins. And so they love telling me things about the river dolphins. They love telling stories about them. They love telling me where they saw them. Um, so a couple of years ago, I started recording some of these stories. Um, so some, some folks are very, very afraid of them. Um, some of them believe that they are magical um, because they like the shapeshifter. So they think that it is bad luck to harm a river dolphin. Um, but then again, then there are some other areas where they do hunt and kill them. So it's a pretty big range of what people believe about the Amazon river dolphin. So, so they were interacting before I got there Definitely. But then, like I said, I started asking all of these questions. So I have begun to share my own stories with them. And it's really neat. At night, we can sit down and we all have dinner together and we will exchange stories um, about the wildlife, um, certainly the Amazon River dolphins. So I think even prior to me getting there, they definitely had different beliefs about the river dolphins and they have, they have come to know more about them. And now I think they are more cautious of them. And I think they make more of a note when they see them. Um, so they, because they tell me these stories and they help me find them. So it is, uh, it has really worked out over the years. Yeah, I, th I think it's a very beautiful mixture, you know, bringing the science and the local understanding. I think it just makes it more uh, robust, you know, I mean, the understanding of the animal. Yes, I agree. That's a very, that's a great way to put it. It is. It, it does. It becomes more robust. I love that. So what would you say your greatest challenge has been trying to conserve the Amazon River dolphin? <laughs> Probably the language. <laughs> I have, I did not know any Portuguese at all when I first started going there. I have learned an awful lot of it um, and continue to learn that. Um, that has probably been the biggest. Um, but, you know, just, um, just going in and just being, and just learning their culture and their way of life in knowing that it is very different from my own and um, in how I can best serve uh, the communities and how I can best serve saving the Amazon River Dolphin through helping them. So 
it's, it's, it's been this kind of delicate balance of learning the language and the culture, but they are all wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and they, they have made all the difference in the world for it. So that's been very helpful in the project. I read about a moratorium short while ago. People are asking the government to renew a moratorium so that the endangered river dolphins can be saved. What's going on and what is your take on it? So five years ago, the moratorium that you speak of is they put a ban uh, on fishing Piracachinga, which um, there was some video footage that was shown on national TV in Brazil of, um, of some local people killing a Amazon river dolphin. And it turned out not only did they kill the Amazon river dolphin, but they also found out that it was pregnant. Um, so when they showed this video footage on national TV, it sparked just, there was just outrage in the country, which was really good. And there was a large push for the government to do something about that. And they did. So they put a five-year moratorium on the fishing of Pira Kachinga, which was good because it gave the Piracachinga a break, and then it also gave the Amazon River Dolphin a rest from being hunted and killed. Well, that moratorium was, uh, it ended December 31st of 2019. And what we had hoped from the researchers and the field biologists, we all had hoped that Every, since everything was in place, the moratorium was in place, we had hoped that it would just be extended. There wasn't anything more that needed to happen. They just needed to extend it. But what happened was they lifted it. So starting January 1st of 2020, it is now legal. It is okay for people to fish Pier Kachinga, which means that people are killing Amazon River dolphins again. And there is another uh, complication with the Piracachinga because there are people who study that catfish and they are finding very dangerously high levels of mercury. Um, and that is a lot caused by a lot of the runoff from the illegal mining that is happening in the Amazon rainforest. So there are a lot of bad things that are happening. And now with that moratorium, not in place anymore it has it has put those challenges back into place so those of us that are working to save not only the amazon river dolphin but uh, many of the other species in the rainforest um, we would like to see that moratorium back in place because even with the moratorium, we already talked about how there are not enough agents so a lot of these killings and a lot of the fishing was still happening anyway, not to the extent without the moratorium, but because they didn't have the agents to protect it. But now since it is okay for them to do it again, um, it has just really decreased the numbers of the Amazon river dolphin and for the Piracachinga. And the Piracachinga is not safe for people to eat on top of that. So um, it is very, very unfortunate 
that that has happened with the moratorium and we just have to keep fighting to try to get that moratorium back into place or something similar uh, so that we can make it safe again. So there was a, a section that you and Suzanne talk about, and this is the part that I knew about, um, you know, ahead of this episode. So I really didn't know that much about Amazon River Dolphins, but I did know about the the legend that's mentioned in the episode where you have the legend that these dolphins come ashore and um, turn into humans and they have to wear a hat or something to cover the top of their head to um, disguise their their blowhole. I really, really love that legend. It resonates with me so much. There's so much um, reverence and respect, it sounds like, from the elders in these communities for these dolphins. And so it, it really ties in not just the buy-in, you know, with the community and making sure that there are um, good alternatives when you are trying to change um, behavior, but also that there's um, sort of like spiritual and cultural connections. And these connections are really important to protecting some of these species too. Um, And I just think that that's a really beautiful um, connection between all of this, between the science and, you know, the, the culture of these people, these locals. Yeah, you know, I, I once read um, about a community in Nigeria. So they venerate crocodiles, the coastal community. And um, so the title of the article was The Crocodile, Our Brother. <laughs> and they're actually really serious about it. Like if you kill the crocodile, they, they find you heavily. I think you have to perform a ceremony as though you were burying a human being. And this is because of some of the spiritual connections you know that these people have they have deep cultural and traditional ties you know to those animals so it helps because these people have vested interest in this so it's both helpful to them and to the animals when whoever is coming in to maybe study those animals or you know try to improve on the conservation you know understands these things you know, we we sort of end the episode talking about um, the moratorium on hunting of the Amazon River dolphins ending. And, you know, that sort of does complicate, you know, <laughs> it complicates things and the prospect of their protection in the future. But Suzanne still seems incredibly optimistic. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how, how do we stay positive? when we have so many odds stacked up against us, you know, in, in this particular environment, it's the Amazon River dolphin and the hunting of these dolphins and potentially to their detriment and extinction. Um, but how do we stay positive when we we have so many things up against these environments and these species? <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> first of all, I think the approach that she brings to it. Um, I call it the conservation triple threats, the collaboration with locals, research and education. Those three things working hand in hand, they go a long way. So in as much as this moratorium is not there and things look sort of bleak, there is work that is going on to educate these locals. And when people understand some things when people have come to say that okay this is for our own good this is our environment that we don't want to destroy 
I think when people take it up for themselves, when it becomes their own cause, even if there is no legal protection, I think people can come up with ways of regulating these things. You know, what is important is just for the people to be willing to want to do this. And I think another thing is the fact that data is already being collected. So if this lack of a moratorium goes on, this research can show that there is a difference between the years um, when there was a moratorium and the years when there was a moratorium. And with the data, people see that there is a problem. I think it would help for people to take drastic measures. Data is one of the best arguments you can present. I definitely think there is reason for optimism. Yeah, people are participating, they're collecting data. Yeah, I think, and I think so too. I I would agree that there's definitely hope. Um, And I I love the idea that um, even if there isn't legal recourse, you know, and there's maybe a lapse in, in this for now, that people are still genuinely passionate and once they have all of the information you know and um, understand the effects of their actions that people do want to change and protect their environments and that the people are genuinely good out there Um, and you know I, I just think that's a great story so thank you for this episode Esther I really really enjoyed it I'm really excited for Suzanne and her research to continue and I hope we can get an update And Esther, hopefully we'll get an update from you and your research and um, have you on the show again really soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. If you liked what you heard or maybe learned something new, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so that listeners can find our show. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps us continue to bring you exciting, informative content each and every episode. This episode was guest produced by Esther Nosazayoge and co-produced by me, Serena Simons. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for today's music.